0: This is the London Live Podcast. Listen live weekdays from 1 to 3 on 980 CFPL.
1: Long-term care its something that comes up a lot because it needs to. It is something that needs to be more of a concern, whether it be those who are living in long-term care, those who are working in long-term care. A lot of details that maybe weren't front and center have become more front and center because of the pandemic. Some details have been discussed for a long, long time. How do we make things better? Well, the Time to Care Act has been out there in various forms. It is a bill known as Bill 13. It would ensure a minimum daily average of four hours of hands-on care, For every single long-term care resident in a long-term care home in the province. There was an advisory group on staffing in long-term care that weighed in on this. This is something that is not just being put together. It has gone through a lot of different steps and a lot of different stages. And joining us right now is London Fanshawe NDP, MPP, Teresa Armstrong, who has introduced this going back in time, and now we're waiting to see how things play out. Ms. Armstrong, thank you so much for being with us today.
2: Well, thank you for having me on the show, Mike, and raising this again. It's so important that we keep talking about the changes so we can pressure this government into passing this bill right away.
1: And it seemed like we were on a track we had first reading we had second reading where do we sit right now
2: well the bill is in committee right now and this government has the opportunity to prioritize long-term care the most vulnerable residents uh, that receive care uh, the time to care act is uh, been sitting there since uh, we passed it uh, over 100 days now and the government if is- can do this. We called uh, a unanimous consent yesterday for the government to actually um, pass it and get it out of committee and do the right thing so that we can show families and workers that we are going to improve things. We just can't keep on the same track and not having um, workers be able to know that they have the time to deliver the care that they're supposed to with the resources that they have. And then you've got, you know, our most vulnerable people in long-term care and families worried um, about the quality of care, not, you know, the standard of care. So the government has the power, the government needs the will and, and to prioritize this bill and get it out of committee, um, even if they want to do uh, consultations, expedite it like they've done other bills before now. Uh, an example I'll give you is Bill 218. They did that quick in quick haste. They passed Bill 218, which makes it much more difficult to hold for-profit long-term care homes uh, accountable um, for, you know, uh, passing having someone die because of COVID or getting ill because of COVID. That was done, you know, very short order to protect a for-profit long-term care homes. Now we have, this government has an opportunity. To ensure that our most vulnerable loved ones in long-term care have that, that four hours of hands-on minimum standard, and they're refusing to do it. They, you know, the the best they can do is letting us know that by 2025, um, they're looking at, uh, you know, uh, an average of, of four hours of care. Not good enough. People need this now.
1: Yeah, if this was 2024, or if it was December of 2024, okay, all right, yeah, that, that sounds good. It's 2021. We're joined right now by London Fanshaw, NDP, MPP, Teresa Armstrong. Ms. Armstrong, can you take us through the political science 101 of this, just to make sure that we have a grasp of what's going on? What took place yesterday in trying to get this out of committees?
2: Yep. Yeah, so we had uh, a package the NDP wanted to present to this government uh, to start working on solutions to help people during the pandemic. And my my bill was part of that package. And uh, I stood up in the legislature and asked for unanimous consent uh, to move a motion regarding the immediate passage of Bill 13 so that we can help protect seniors in long-term care from COVID. The government said no. Um, now... There's no reason that they can't uh, prioritize this bill. We know that over 3,800 deaths have happened uh, in, with our loved ones in long-term care that were avoidable. And, you know, they've had a year to prepare for the second wave, and more vulnerable people have passed away this time around the COVID uh, phase than last time. So they, just, they really just need to stop uh, making excuses And start prioritizing and make long term care the urgent, with the urgency that it has, is to protect our most vulnerable in long term care and make sure the workers who have committed and dedicated their lives, their careers to looking after our loved ones, that they have those resources to do that.
1: Ms. Armstrong, what do you feel is the biggest hang-up in this case? Would it be the cost to the government, the the headache that it would create to try and implement something that, that would have big change? What do you see as being kind of number one on that list?
2: Well, we have been fighting for four hours of care for the last five years. We've known for at least a decade that care was not up to standard. Um, so for the government. Uh, you know, successive governments, liberals or conservatives to say, you know, we're not aware of it, we need to plan more for it. There's no excuse for it. And the government has billions of dollars that, that they've been sitting on that they can use to actually put this plan in place. Other provinces have done it. They haven't stalled. They haven't made excuses. You have Quebec and B.C. They hired those workers. They implemented that plan because if we don't If we had done this a year ago, started planning at our phase two right now we're in, our long-term care results would have been so much different. But we failed in planning for the long-term care file. And now we're saying to this government, stop stalling. Let's get going. Make it happen. Don't wait to 2025. That's insulting and really disrespectful to the people that are there now. They've acknowledged that the care isn't up to par. Canadian Armed Forces you know, put it, Sean, the light on it. We always knew it was there. It's been, like, as you said, the pandemics brought it to the forefront. So there's no excuse. And the fact that, you know, the Ford government uh, keeps saying, the premier keeps saying, you know, we're going to do everything we can. Everything's on the table. We want an iron ring around long-term care. And then to have continually um, not implement Bill 13 and pass it, and make sure that there is that real iron ring around our long-term care is is not, it's just sad that he won't actually put this in place. But keeps talking about an iron ring that just doesn't exist unless there's there's actual solid plans for a standard of care, hands-on care of four hours.
1: London Fanshawe, NDP MPP, Teresa Armstrong joining us as we talk about something that was introduced by Ms. Armstrong as a private member's bill. It is Bill 13, Time to Care Act. Before we go, Ms. Armstrong, if you could just outline what it is that that would come out of this. You mentioned the four hours per care per resident of a long-term care home. What else is in there that could assist?
2: Well, also, it, what it does is it legislates it so that homes are count are held accountable for providing that care, and and what'll happen is when we say, uh, you know, we're gonna legislate four hours of care, then that means more workers will come on board, and that's what we need. We need more people in long term care to deliver that four hours. We've been short staffed for decades, and it's and there's, as you have said, and many people know, there's been studies on this before the pandemic the advisory group that the staff advisory group that the government uh, you know composed they said four hours of care the government commission itself that's looking into long-term care during the pandemic they said four hours of care so it's it's very something that is needed common sense that can be done and has to have a government with the will to move this urgently forward to protect our seniors in long-term care
1: Because you mentioned earlier there was the legislation that, in a way, protected the government from COVID-19 lawsuits or COVID-19-related lawsuits and therefore protected some of those private care homes that may have been facing lawsuits. That's been passed, right?
2: That's been passed. It's called Bill 218, and it was done in short order in the legislature. Um, So, you know, if the government can do that, they need to look at Bill 13, If you you, uh, think about the fact that, you know, they passed that bill so quickly, we know that statistically for-profit long-term care homes have the worst record during the pandemic. So, you know, the government quickly passed 218 to put a ring around, an iron ring around lawsuits to protect the for-profit care, long-term care homes. Now we need to actually make it uh, put our energy into passing Bill 13 so we can protect the people that live and work in long-term care, not just the for-profit companies that are continually to collect dividends while we're during a pandemic and while lives are lost. Families need help, and they need help now, and they need a government to step up, and they need to pass this Bill 13 to accomplish this.
1: Ms. Armstrong, thank you so much for your work on this, and thanks so much for taking some time for us today. Keep safe.
2: You too. I appreciate the opportunity to, to uh, keep pushing this government to pass Bill 13. Bye-bye.
1: We'll talk again, I'm sure. Yes,
2: I hope so. Bye-bye.
1: And a, hopefully about a happier ending. That is London NDP, or London Fanshawe NDP, MPP, Theresa Armstrong. You know, it's it has been almost a year, and that Iron Ring statement of all the statements that the Ontario government has made, that one came with some of the biggest imagery. That was one of the more powerful things that was out there. And the premier spoke with conviction and he said, hey, we're seeing real problems in long-term care homes. We're going to put an iron ring around long-term care in this province. And you just wanted to go, yeah. Yes. And that's great. But what are we seeing now? You can look at the data, and it suggests that the ring has not been iron and it has not been all the way around long term care because we aren't seeing things done. You know, if you live in a rental property and your landlord knows that your stove is not working correctly that maybe you only have one burner, and maybe you can only heat it to 400 degrees, and you say, this needs to be fixed, and the landlord comes back and says, yes, yes, I am going to fix that. You wouldn't believe how well I'm going to fix that. You watch that landlord leave, and you say, yes, That's fantastic. The stove is going to be fixed. It's going to be great. We're going to be able to cook with more than one pot at the same time. We're going to be able to give dinner the attention it deserves. This is outstanding. And then you wait. And nothing is done. Or little things are done. Hey, you know, saw that burners are on sale at the hardware store. If you want to go pick one of those up, well... Well, no, no, this, I rent, this, this is, this is your responsibility. So I'm, I'm not the one who's going to go and replace the burner. That's good that burners are on sale at the hardware store. You should go get one and fix the stove. Eventually you look for, okay, what has happened? And over the past year, what has happened? We have not seen things change in long-term care to what was laid out was going to take place so what do you do if you have a loved one in long-term care right now it would be great to hear what you have been going through what exactly has it been like what sorts of things you finding because we at the same time we've got to point out that some long-term care homes are run very well that this is one of those general problems but it is a general problem as miss armstrong pointed out goes back 5 years goes back before this government but this has helped to really shed a light on it because why aren't we caring more about what happens to people who are in the last years of their life ChevroletGoodDeedsCup.ca. Make sure that you bookmark that and visit it on a regular basis because there is some strong London content in the Good Deeds Cup competition that is going on this year. On Saturday night on Hockey Night in Canada, it was announced that the under-13 London Devilettes were a regional finalist. What does that mean? They're basically representing Ontario in all of this. A regional finalist. And that means they're close, and that also means that they need all of our votes at ChevroletGoodDeedsCup.ca. We had a chance earlier today, because he's in the middle of teaching Right now, and we couldn't tear him away from that. But we had a chance to talk with Mike Volon, who is the head coach of the under-13 London Devilettes, and we had him take us back to Saturday night. Because if you had a shot to move on... In the Good Deeds Cup competition, there have been Junior Knights teams that have done this in the past, and there have been Devilettes teams that have done this in the past, and they've put together great videos, great packages, they've done so much around the community. If you have that going on and you know that there's an announcement, you would have a big team event. Hey, everybody, let's get together. We'll watch the Toronto Maple Leafs play the Montreal Canadiens, and we'll see whether or not we become a regional finalist. Well, that can't necessarily happen this time around, so we asked Mike Vallon what it was like when it was announced that his London Devils team had been named a regional finalist.
0: Uh, well, I left the team, though. Everyone knew that the, uh, the regional finalists were going to be announced uh, on Saturday night, so everyone was watching, watching Hockey Night in Canada, and um, I know at my house, it was just an explosion when we saw our name up on the big screen, um, and then after that, my, my phone started blowing up, and Everyone I know was trying to get a hold of me and contact me, and the team was excited. And uh, Yeah, it was just euphoria all the way around.
1: How much of a surprise was it?
0: Um, It was a big surprise, to be honest. There were so many great ideas. Um, I've been um, involved in this compete cup for almost uh, every year of the five years that's been going on, and I've never come close to being a regional finalist. So I knew it was tough with all the great ideas out there. So, um, yeah, I couldn't believe it. I'm still in shock a little bit with all the great uh, videos that are
1: out there. Mike, take us through what you had to do in order to become a regional finalist because this has been such a different year. So what was it that the U13 London Devilettes did?
0: Um, Well, as you said, it is definitely a different year. Usually um, the Good Beats Cup... Gets the hockey, youth hockey teams out in their community and, and does good things for the community, uh, to promote, uh, hard work and respect and all those good things to be a good person. Uh, this year, obviously we weren't allowed to go in the communities because of the pandemic. So, um, the idea this year was create a video that talks about uh, a good idea or a pitch in order to, what would you do if you were able to, um, have a hundred thousand dollars, which is the grand prize. What, what, what could you do in your community in order to, uh, benefit others
1: and what did you come up with
0: uh so the idea was um and actually we all started with our, our goalie and our goalie um uh, got a scholarship this past year from the black girls hockey club Uh that's where we started out with and from there uh we started talking about let's see if we can um promote diversity and uh and inclusion in, in our in our game that we love so we sort of partnered with uh, Black Girls Hockey Club as well as uh, the Canadian Training Institute and the um, uh, the Film Stars Project to uh, create sort of an online community uh, in order to do exactly that, promote diversity and foster inclusion in hockey. And uh, we've gotten so much positive feedback and comments about this idea and it's sort of exploded.
1: That's fantastic. Mike Vallon joining us from the London Devilettes as we talk about the Devilettes being named a regional finalist in the Good Deeds Cup last Saturday. And now moving forward, I mean, the competition is on. In London, Mike, how do we help out? Uh,
0: In London, all of Ontario, because we're representing all of Ontario. But um, go to ChevroletGoodDeedsCup.ca and vote. and You can vote every single day. Uh, so I encourage you and everyone you know to do it as much as you can. There are 11 finalists left over uh, and it's basically a, a, vote, a vote tally right now. So everyone um, in February 24th is the final day to uh, cast your vote. So after that they take the, the top three vote getters and they go to the finals.
1: Then time is a ticking, so get to the website right now, Chevrolet Good Cup dot C A. Uh, Mike, this year, can you describe how the players have been dealing with this year?
0: Um, it's been tough. It's been tough. I mean, um, used to going and, and traveling and uh, tournaments and going to other cities and playing other teams, so I haven't been able to do any of that. So. Um, I mean, they're resilient, though. They, they they see what they have, and I think they understand the situation from all levels, all ages, and they're doing the best they can. Um, there's been some great coaches out there to maintain uh, safety but also maintain fun and development. And um, everyone knows that we're in a different situation this year, and everyone's just dealing with it. So uh, kids are resilient. I see them come to the arena with smiles on their faces, and they have smiles on their faces when they leave. So uh, to me, that's still so, uh, so, so part of a positive year.
1: Now that we're back into red, what does that mean?
0: Uh, so we are able to get back on the ice, which we couldn't for the last month. Um, but we have a bunch of restrictions based on that. So we can only allow 10, 10 players on the ice, no dressing rooms. Um, they sanitize everything between each of the uh, the teams going on the ice. Uh, so a lot of things that need to be different. But again, if we're able to get on the ice, then it's a, a good thing in the end.
1: Absolutely, and in the meantime, let's see how many votes we can get for all of Ontario, and let's see if uh, you can go even further in the Good Deeds Cup. Mike, thanks so much for all that you do with the players and with the organization. The Devilettes has been such a tremendous organization. Great to see that name up there as a regional finalist. Let's see how far you can go with this project because it's a tremendous one. Appreciate the time.
0: Thank you very
1: much. That is Mike Villon, head coach of the under 13 London Devilettes. Really easy. Good Deeds Cup. Well, you can go, let's just say it ChevroletGoodDeedsCup.ca. There are a number of ways to get there, but ChevroletGoodDeedsCup.ca. And when you're putting in that web address, you almost you have to have two D's in a row. It'll look weird, it'll seem weird, but Good Deeds That's the way it is, ChevroletGoodDeedsCup.ca, and immediately you'll be shown all of the teams. And if you want to vote for the London Devilettes, you just scroll down a little bit, and you click London Devilettes. You put in your name, your email, your postal code. You can click Don't Contact Me. It's pretty easy. And then off and running, you can vote for them. And here's hoping that they wind up with the opportunity to make use of that prize money and implement what they have put forward in their video sounds tremendous we are going to talk right now about creating families it's a topic that we haven't really ever talked about on london live before and we're always up for new conversations but the idea that It isn't always as easy as that old, uncomfortable conversation with your father or your mother about birds and bees. It's not as easy as that sometimes. And in fact, sometimes couples will need to look for some guidance, some assistance. And with Monday being Family Day, we have an opportunity to hear right now from Melissa McNichol and... Melissa is from London Fertility Concierge, and we have an opportunity to talk about what sorts of things are available to couples, and we'll get to that in a moment. Melissa, how's today going?
3: Off to a good start so far.
1: Good, good. Well, there are, and there may be, couples right now starting maybe even on family day thinking, I know we're in a pandemic, but you know what, I think we're going to try and have a baby, and you think, well, that's that's not that difficult, you know, the birds and the bees, uh, get that down pat, and, you know, it shouldn't take too long, and then maybe a, a month goes by, and they're not pregnant and then maybe three months four months six months maybe closing in on a year and at first you don't talk to anybody about it because you think okay well well, it's yeah it's got to be right around the corner here and then you start asking people and you hear oh you know it took us a long long time or you find out well you know what it it wasn't possible for us in the way that you might think when we're talking about fertility how How important do you think it is for people to realize that it's not as easy as it might seem?
3: Well, Mike, you know, I want to start by saying, first of all, a pandemic does not stop baby making. (laughs) Whether that you're naturally conceiving or you're getting support from a fertility clinic, it does not stop. Um, So that's the first thing that I wanted to say. The second thing is that trying to conceive comes very easily for some. And not so easily for others. And currently, they say one in six Canadians are actually affected by infertility, um, which is actually a, a disease, believe it or not. A lot of people don't necessarily look at it that way. But there is some sort of issue, whether it's male or female factor, with the reproductive system that's just not connecting somewhere along the way. And sometimes you need help to just figure out what the little fix is to get you where you want to be. If and generally, I know you were saying, you know, kind of one month, two months. So generally speaking, they say if you're under 35 years old, try for one year on your own before reaching out to your family physician or even just a direct Referral to a fertility clinic. If you're over 35, they say to try for six months before reaching out to those avenues. Unless, of course, you know that there was an issue like endometriosis or PCOS that you had previously been diagnosed with, then you're going to want to reach out sooner than that.
1: Okay, so at least there's there's kind of a rule of thumb, but let's talk a little bit about the fact that it may not be possible to know what is going on. It's rather impossible to know what's going on inside our own bodies. So what sorts of things are we looking to find out if you've gone six months and if it doesn't seem as though you are able to conceive?
3: Well, you're definitely going to go to the clinic who's going to run some kind of baseline tests for you. Um, You know, they're going to look at both, again, the male and female side as both kind of present 50% of what needs to be had. Um, So that's really the, the beginning is, you know, connecting with a clinic and getting some of that baseline testing done. Because as you said, we don't know what's happening inside of our bodies. Um, and the only way to know that is to actually take a closer look at it.
1: What can be some of the issues that are taking place?
3: Uh, There's things like endometriosis, uh, PCOS, which is polycystic ovarian syndrome. There can be male factor issues, whether that's a number with sperm count, uh, motility or morphology, which is how they kind of move around or what they look like. Um, you can have blocked tubes. Um, you could be getting pregnant and having, you know, recurrent losses and, and miscarriages. Um, there's definitely an array of diagnosis that, that come about. But, um, you know, generally speaking, there is kind of a fix for any one of those things. And I, I find it's really important. I talk a lot about building a team of fertility-related professionals to help you because this really can be overwhelming. Um, I know as a former infertility patient myself, uh, and from personal experience, just how overwhelming it can be. The medical lingo is a lot. It can cost a lot of money. We're lucky that in Ontario, uh, the government now funds uh, one IVF per person per lifetime, which is wonderful. Um, But the medications can be very expensive. And if that's the route you're going, you know, this might be the one shot that that you have to create and build your family. And so, You know, you don't want to look back and say, oh, geez, I wish I had have known that extra support existed here or, you know, that I I could have asked these questions or I should have known this, Um, you know, so I really push about creating this this fertility team because your goal of having a baby is our same goal for you.
1: We are talking with Melissa McNichol from London Fertility Concierge and we're looking at having a baby and some of the challenges that certainly can exist, starting a family and the well the challenges that can exist. Melissa, because you have walked in those shoes before, there can be stress. Mm-hmm. It sounds like there there are many ways that there can be a lot of anxiety. How do you deal with that?
3: Well, it's hard to say one day at a time because we all want the end goal like yesterday. Um... So I really think it is about starting with the baby steps, you know, kind of trying on your own, like I said, getting into the clinic, reaching out to some other people for support. Uh, With one of Fertility Concierge, we do offer some free supports, which are currently happening on Zoom right now, but um, we do have like a monthly fertility night group that meets face-to-face every month. And there is also an online Facebook group, which has almost 400 members who are all Londoners or within the immediate surrounding area who are all on the same kind of journey and experiencing some of those same frustrations.
1: Well, that says it right there. I mean, being able to talk to people who know what you're going through, that's handy.
3: Yes, definitely.
1: Now, in terms of what is done Is everything, you know, leading toward perhaps, uh, you know, an in vitro procedure or are there other things that can be looked at that maybe can be done to assist?
3: I mean, in vitro is uh, fertilization or IVF is kind of the end all be all of what people think is going to work. I wish that I could say that that's the case, but even doing IVF you're looking at about a 40% success rate. Now depending on what your diagnosis is once you start getting into the clinic and doing treatment on both male and female factors is really going to steer your direction of where you're going to go. Maybe they're going to suggest uh, you know a, a natural just monitored cycle where they'll just monitor you to see, you know, when ovulation takes place. Maybe they'll add in some medications and and make it a a medicated cycle just to give your body an extra boost. Maybe they might consider uh, trying IUI, which is intrauterine insemination. Uh, It's less invasive. It's less expensive. It does only have only a success rate of about 12% per try. Uh, But they might try some of these things or all of these things before ever moving to IVF. And then, of course, there's always... You know, if you end up going with egg donor, sperm donor, embryo donor, using a surrogate or a gestational carrier, and adoption, and there's so many avenues that you can go through to have and start your family.
1: Fantastic to know. Melissa, this has been really informative. Anything you think we're missing on?
3: I just think you have to learn how to advocate for yourself. Every month is important. As we age, obviously so do our bodies and you know that plays a big role and you know it's very very important that you feel comfortable confident and educated with everything to do with this journey you want to make sure that you know everything that you can um, moving forward with this and I'm certainly happy to help anybody in London or beyond you know virtual work has really been able to open up you know the service area people that I'm able to help and reach and support so I, I think that's that's the big key: is advocacy, knowing you know what to ask, who to ask it to, and being in some of these groups where you're you're connected with other people who really get it is a great resource for you.
1: Melissa, thanks so much for this, and please keep safe.
3: Thanks, Mike. You too.
1: Melissa McNichol from London Fertility Concierge. So, uh, who else didn't know that some of this could be covered at least? Uh, one-time coverage on this i'm i'm throwing my hand in the air so thanks to melissa for all of the information
0: you've been listening to the london live podcast catch the show live on weekdays from one to three